Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called The Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. And welcome to episode 1116. It is a throwback Thursday episode. We'll definitely go throwback, not throw up. Right next to me is... Hi, I am your host, Patrick Riley. I am the villain of the story. That is me. I am the villain of this episode and all of the previous ones. And the hero right next to me is Kimmy. Hello, Kimmy. Hello. And how are you on this throwback Thursday? So far, so good. That's good. Are you ready to throw back something on this episode? Sure. I think we might throw back a couple of things on this episode. Okay. And it is, you don't have to worry about throw, you know, throwing it back here because you'll still be able to drive. Okay. Be able to function quite well. All right. That's right. Don't worry about throwing up on the Throwback Thursday. All right. With the Riley and Kimmy show, that is. Yes. And by the way, tell your friends you found a place with pop culture escapism. This is, is the subject matter all the time. It's a daily variety nerd geek talk show. Please help the show grow and share our Facebook page, our website, all that stuff. Share with your friends, even your enemies. Link them right to our website, RileyandKimmy.com, our Facebook page other social media as well. We have videos and photos and interviews, including celebrity interviews, all available for your entertaining or torture purposes. And you can find all of that on our website, which is RileyandKimmy.com. Yes, RileyandKimmy.com. By the way, be sure to check out our Facebook page for a interview, video interview with Todd Merrick, the owner of Heroes Landing in Claremont, a comic book store. Todd reviews the guests that are going to be appearing, the celebrity comic book guests, at the Orlando Toy and Comic Con at the end of this month, on January 29th, Todd gives his little insight, his little input on the guests. Not all the comic book guests, too. Some of the others, too, as well. Sort of like Space Ghost, he talks about. That's George Lowe, the voice of. And Tug, the bull terrier puppy, who will be appearing. Mm-hmm. Check out that video. It's available right now on our Facebook page. Also, our website. You can find that at RileyandKimmy.com. And for a throwback Thursday on our Facebook page, we have available a video interview with Tug, the bull terrier puppy, actually his father, that is Blake Ovard. We talked to Blake about Tug. And you can find out a little bit about Tug's history with that. It's, it's a sad story, actually, where it starts out, but it turns out into a just a remarkable story of survival and inspiration. And you'll find out why Tug truly is a superhero. And all the nice things that Tug do, does, super things, right? That Absolutely. He, he supports um, anti-bullying and... Um, dementia, dementia awareness. Yes, dementia awareness. And and Blake gives that story and talks about all those n- nice things. And Tug will be appearing in Orlando at a couple of locations. First is a pre-party for the Orlando Toy and Comic-Con on January 28th at Big J's Toys. That's at the Artagon Marketplace in Orlando. You can meet Tug. 
And Tug, by the way, will also be accompanied by Space Ghost himself. So two superheroes will be together. George Lowe will be there as well. And somebody who draws superheroes, that is Chad Thomas, who draws the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, will be there. You can get your picture with Tug. That's at the Orlando Toy and Comic-Con's pre-party at Big J's Toys at the Artagon Marketplace. O'Reilly and Kimmy Show will be there. We'll be debuting our new mascot, unnamed at the moment, because we're hoping you will name the mascot. The unnamed mascot will be making an appearance as well. And Tug also, by the way, will be appearing with the other guests we just mentioned at the Orlando Toy and Comic-Con. That is on Sunday, January 29th. We hope you can make it. If you are in Orlando, you know anybody flying in, maybe vacationing during that time period, this is very close to the theme parks. It's at the Holiday Inn Universal Studios area. Very easy to get to. Night. I mean, this is free parking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is a nice, affordable convention. Yes, it is. And full of celebrities. And you can find out more about the celebrities and some opinions about them from some people who I consider experts in comic books. We have videos available on our Facebook page, also our website from other comic book shop owners. And they give their opinions on each one of those artists. Mm -hmm. Because some of them have a favorite who will be there. And you can pick up some unique prints, also sketches and all kinds of things. And also collectibles too, not just from the artists there. And who knows what Space Ghost will be doing at both those locations we mentioned. That is Big J's Toys at the Artigan Marketplace and also at at the big Orlando Toy and Comic-Con. I never know what to expect with him. You can check out our recent... um, interview, if you will, or promotional video where George talks about the upcoming Orlando Toy and Comic-Con. That video is available as well on our Facebook page and other social media, and I gave him a present, as as you know, Kimmy, I, just for being part of that video. I gave, yes. him, I gave him a can of meat. Yes, you and, did. And, and it's, a, it's a rather unique uh, conversation with the legendary voice of Space Ghost. George Lowe. Check those out. All those things are available right on our website. What's our web address, Kimmy? RileyandKimmy.com. Yes, that's right. And Kimmy, I have a question for you. Are you ready to play Nerd and Pop Culture Geek Trivia on this Thursday, January 12th? I've been waiting for you to ask me that. We're ready. I'm ready. I hope Kimmy's ready for Nerd and Pop Culture Geek Trivia. Are you ready, Kimmy? I'm ready. All right. We're going to be asking you some questions from the Almanac for this date in history. Mostly pop culture related. Get more of them right than wrong. We have absolutely nothing to give to you on this episode of the Riley and Kimmy Show, except we have one big attaboy for you. Okay. Uh, I, I can tell I'm you. I'm used to that. You're used to that. What, what do you mean? Are you saying I'm cheap? The show's cheap? Is that what you're saying? Well, um, well you yeah. know what? Just because you are good to the Riley and Kimmy show, being half of it, that is, we will give you what we gave George Lowe recently at, an, at a convention. We will give you a can of Spam, generic version, if you get more of these right than wrong. Okay. How's that? Great. Will you at least be happy you win that can? Treating me like a celebrity. Yes, treating you exactly like a celebrity. And you know he was quite happy to get that can of spam. He had a lot to say about it. Yes, he did. So here we go, Kimmy. We'll make you as happy as George Lowe, possibly. It's all up to you. It was on this date, Kimmy. Give me the year. You have a two-year buffer, plus or minus. And by the way, before we give an actual question, I need to point out these questions can be jumbled up all over the place. They're not necessarily linear, not chronological, not in order. Okay? Mm-hmm. Within two years, it was on this date, Led Zeppelin's debut album was released in the United States. Give me the year. 
1970. You got it within two years. It was 1969. Kimmy, it was on this date in history. This television show debuted. It actually debuted, think about it, wintertime. You'll understand why I'm stressing that that's kind of odd. Debuted wintertime and would become really huge for a brief period of time. Now, our question for you is, can you identify the TV show and... Can you tell us the year it happened? You have to be exactly right. And the television network it aired on originally. Here is your audio clue. That is your only clue, Kimmy. Tell me the name of the television show. Batman. You say it's Batman. Give me the year. 1966. Yes, Kimmy is 100% correct. 1966 is when it debuted. It is Batman and Tell Me the Network. Oh. Yes, which of the big three did... ABC? 100% correct, Kimmy. All the way across. That spam is looking good. It's going to be in your hands. Lucky you. Uh, generic, that is. And it was on this date, uh, let's see, it was on this date, 1773, the first public museum in America was established. That happened in Charleston, South Carolina. It was 1896 at Davidson College. A, well, group of students took x-ray photographs. They created the first x-ray photographs to be made in America. That was 1896. This one will be fun. It was on this date, Kimmy. I will give you the year. The year is 1904. Henry Ford sets a new land speed record when he reaches up, well, certain speed, how many miles per hour in an automobile? Okay, Kimmy, you had a moment to think about it. It was the year was 1904. Henry Ford sets a new land speed record when he reaches a certain speed. I will give you a buffer of 10 miles per hour, plus or minus. Tell me how fast he made it at. In 1904. 1904. 100. How many? What was my buffer with you? 10. You got it, Kimmy, because it was 91.37 miles per hour. Oh. Can you imagine what that ride was like in that that uh, that uh, craft? Mm. I had a feeling there wasn't, you know, shock not, absorbers. Not smooth. And, yeah. Think about the wheels, the suspension. Did that feel like going like maybe 300 miles an hour or more now? Mm-hmm. Or more. Yeah. Yeah. It was on this date, 1921. Acting to restore confidence in baseball, they did something, Kimmy. It's after the Black Sox scandal, they decided to create and elect the Major League Baseball Commissioner position. Okay. That's when it happened. That was 1921. It's 1949. Arthur Godfrey and his friends moved over from radio. They stayed there, but they also went to television. They went to CBS TV. The show stayed on the network for seven years. You have a 10-year buffer, Kimmy. 10 years. I think you watched this as a child. But not when it debuted. It was on way before your, you know, when you started walking on Earth or when you were crawling on the floor. It had been on for a long period of time. It was on this date. Kukla, Fran, and Ollie made the debut 
on NBC TV. Give me the year, we'll give you 10 years, plus or minus. Did you watch Kukla, Fran and Ollie? Yes, I Saturday afternoons do or mid mornings. seeing it. Correct? Uh huh. Didn't they host like movies or something? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yes. Um, okay. I remember seeing clips of them in black and white, so I'm going to say like 1955. I gave you a 10 year buffer. You got it 1949. They were color. I wonder why you saw them in black and white. They were always in color. Well, no, no, they did black and white That's stuff. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, in 49, they were black and white and stuff. But I remember seeing clips of them in black and white. When CBS television had them hosting the mid-Saturday morning or early Saturday afternoon movies, those were color right. productions, if you remember that. Did you like those as a kid, or did you just think those were plain like? I thought it was pretty horrid. <laughs> so did I. It's like, oh, well, time to read comic books or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the after-school specials may stick out in the head, but none of those movies ever. I can't remember no. one thing that they ever showed. Do you? Movies were awful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was on this date, Gibby 1955. Rod Serling's career began with the television production of Patterns. It was 1957. Elvis's recording All Shook Up happened, and it was material for his forthcoming movie, Loving you. It was 1959. Barry Gordy borrowed $800 to found a certain record company. Can you tell me the name of the record company, Kimmy? Motown. That is correct. It's on this date. Give me the year. This television show returns to network TV after being off the network for eight years. Here is your audio clue. It's two-part question. Well, three-part, actually. Give me the year. Exactly. Give me the name of the TV show and tell me the network it returns on. It's very simple. Here's your brief audio clue. Kimmy, the year. The year? It returns to television. Now, you only know these versions of it. The black and white versions were on previously, and of course it was in radio even before that. But you give me the year, and you would see, because when the show would open up, it would open up with that theme, they'd show the shield, they would show Joe, Joe Friday's uh, badge, and they would have the year right underneath it. Give me the year that Dragnet debuted, and you have to be exact. 68? 1967 it happened, and give me the network. NBC? Correct. You see, you got most of that Correct. It was on this date, 1965. The dance show Hullabaloo premieres on NBC. The new shows run until April of 1966. It was 19-something, Kimmy. Give me the year. This is this goes into our weird area. Give me the year. Dr. James Bedford becomes the first person to be cryonically preserved with the intent of being resurrected someday in the future. I will give you a 10-year buffer. Tell me the year the first person actually froze themselves to be preserved, to be thought out at a later date, alive. 1975? And you got it within the 10. It was 1967. Somebody actually did that. Hmm. 1968 saw the Supremes appearing in an episode of Tarzan on NBC TV. The Supremes played a group of nuns. Now, have you ever seen that original 1960s was you know TV show Tarzan? No. Tarzan airs on Heroes and Icons networks, I think, on Saturday mornings. 
dark land of the jungle is the country of the unknown, of savagery, terror, and peril beyond the imagination of men. Here, in the forbidden tangle of the jungle, a child was found and raised by the great apes. The boy took the name Tarzan and later was educated in civilization. But then Tarzan returned to the deadly land he knew so well. And everywhere in the jungle, from the great falls to the huge mountains to the land of ghost men and the limitless rainforest, the cheetah has grown to know one who is swifter. The lion knows one who is braver, Tarzan. The strength of Tarzan, no man can say. Deep in the jungle, Tarzan continues to enforce his law, the law of right. Tarzan's awesome warning cry is known to every living creature in the jungle. Hearing that cry, the antelope knows he is safe. The lion pauses. The crocodile seeks the safety of the water. The elephant comes to his friend, Tarzan of the Apes. Kimmy, you never saw that. No. All right. Well, you got an opportunity if you're up on uh, Saturday mornings when they do the superhero uh, Saturday morning set on heroes and icons. That is one of them they, uh, they run. Ron Eli played Tarzan. And by the way, Tarzan had a real short haircut. In his 1960s version, I don't, I don't know who was cutting the hair, you know, but he didn't have, you know, he didn't have, you know, a lot of hair. He was clean shaven too, which okay. you know, I, I know they depict him, but it's kind of weird, you know. He's living out there, and yeah, I guess he could do that with a knife, you know, he, you know, oh. whatever. He was awful clean. Hmm. I, I mean, he, he was really clean. As a matter of fact, everybody was clean on that show when I watched it before. It's like, all right, because I, I, I don't remember it ever being ran in syndication as a kid, at all. Mm-hmm. I barely remember Doc Tari being ran in syndication, but not Tarzan. And uh, I remember Tarzan, the cartoon, uh, mm-hmm. but not this, you know, the live action version of Tarzan. I didn't remember that at hmm. all. Moving back to the Almanac, Kimmy, this television show made its debut on this date in history. Give me the network it debuted on and give me within two years, plus or minus, when it made its debut. Here is your audio clue. You should be able to identify it within, well... I would say one second. Here is the clue. All right, all right. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like me, we had it made. Those were the days. And you knew where you were Girls were girls and men were men. So we could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. G.R. Olesar and Great. Those were the Original version of the theme song, a little bit hmm, different little there. Bit different. That, that's for the pilot version. I actually have a full version. There's actually longer words to it. Oh. And it's kind of interesting listening to the full version hmm. to it, where Archie or Carol O'Connor sings about freaks. It's kind of, it, oh. He actually does that, that. Freaks are part of the lyrics. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Now tell me the name of the show, Kimmy. All in the Family on CBS. That's correct. Give me the year now. Two years, one way or the other. 72? 1971 is when that happened. 
Moving over to the Almanac music section, Kimmy. It was on this date this rock group opened its first U.S. tour, and that happened at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Tell me the name of the group. I will give you the year. The year is 1984, and this is what they were probably playing on stage that first time. It's from the album from 1984 time period. Name the group. Used to be your ringtone. I had that anytime you called. Tell me who that is, Kimmy. Kiss? No. No. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, they would inspire some bands in that time period uh, from 1984 on. That is Motley Crue oh. with their hit that you just heard there, Looks That Kill. Okay. And, you know, I worked at a radio station at that time period. We changed format, and that was one of the first songs we played. Before that, we were playing, you know, drippy things like Gordon Lightfoot. Mm. And, you know, like Wreck of the Edmunds Fitzgerald, we were playing that up until like noon one day and then switched it over. And that was like the first thing played. All right. That that was like kind of shock time for the That'd system. Jolt. It Well, it was one of those stations that they were trying to survive. They were dying. Mm. They were they were an AM station at that time period. It was trying to stay musical based, which they weren't having a, a successful time doing compared to the FM stations that were now dominating. It was 1985 after a record 24 weeks as the number one album in the nation. Prince slips to the number two spot with what album, Kimmy? Purple Rain. That is correct. Tell me the name of the album. Tell me the name of the artist who kicks him to the number two spot. Here is your audio clue. That's your audio clue, Kimmy. Tell me the name of the album and tell me the name of the artist that kicks him to number two. Born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen. That's correct. Do you have Born in the USA in your vinyl collection? No, I don't. Do you have Princess Purple Rain in your vinyl collection? Oh, well, of course I do. Okay, but you didn't buy Born in the USA. No. Hmm. It was on this date, 1986, the space shuttle Columbia blasted off with a crew that included the first Hispanic American in space, Dr. Franklin R. Chang Diaz. It was on this date, Kimmy, this recording artist debuted. Their debut CD slash album happened. Tell me the name of the artist and give me the year. You have a two-year buffer. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Here is your audio clue. Quite easy. Tell me the name of that recording artist. Britney Spears. And give me the year her debut album happened. 94? 1999. Nine. Oh, really? 1999. Kimmy. Kimmy misses that one. It's a music question. That is a rarity. Gasp. It was on this date, 1999. Mark McGuire's 70th home run ball was sold at auction in New York for $3 million to an anonymous bidder. Think about that. $19.99. Moving to celebrity and notable birthdays. Are you ready for this part, Kimmy? Mm -hmm. We have questions here for you. He was born 1876, died in 1916 at the age of 40. Some of his most famous works include The Call of the Wild and White Fang, both set in the Klondike Gold Rush. Tell me the name of the author. 
Jack London. Exactly right. Did you read either or both of those? Um, I might have. All right. I, I assumed you would. I thought that was kind of like required reading. Probably. I, I, I had both books. I ordered them. Scholastic thing, you know. We could order them every month. I think it was every month you could order books. Ah. Yeah, I, I had both. Yeah. Okay. I liked animals, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so I had both. Tex Ritter, born on this date in 1904, died in 1974 at the age of 68, American country music singer and movie actor. He was popular back in the mid-1930s into the 1960s. He was father of John Ritter. Mm -hmm. And he's a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. See if you can identify who this is, Kimmy. He might have irritated you as a child on Johnny Carson. He was a guest. But he also had his own TV show for a period of time. I believe it aired in a lot of markets on Sunday evenings. It was syndicated. Though he makes predictions, he does not claim to have paranormal or clairvoyant powers and does not like to be called a psychic. One of his best-known tricks is to find his own check for his current performance. If he doesn't find it, he doesn't get paid for that day. He instructs the audience to hide an envelope containing his paycheck while he is escorted off stage. And he's in seclusion. It is hidden. And then he returns and hunts through the audience and almost always is able to find the correct location. According to him, over the course of time, he has only failed nine times. Tell me who he is. I have no idea. You don't remember this person. No. He would appear on Carson from 1970 to 1980 61 times. He would also appear on Letterman in the 80s and 90s. He... He's called a mentalist. You don't remember him. Mm -mm. Wore glasses. No. His name was Kreskin. You don't remember the amazing Kreskin? Oh, okay. You do remember the amazing Kreskin. Mm -hmm. You remember him? Yeah. Tell me how old the amazing Kreskin is within 15 years, Kimmy. Oh, 75. Well, you got it within that... Wait a minute, 75, 15. Yeah, you did. It was, he's 82. You don't remember him at all? Not really. Wow. I remember the name. Yeah, he was—he was kind of—he uh, yeah, was kind of hyper. Would be the best way to put it, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I remember him quite well. Sunday nights, he—they would run in the television markets. I was near. Uh, you could see the amazing Kreskin. And if you watched him as a kid, mate, you know, made you kind of interested in magic and stuff like that. Because hmm. he kind of gets you into that, uh, you know, mind reading thing that the magicians do. Okay. But he wasn't using electronic gizmos and things like that. Actually, he's uh, if you read uh, the material he has written about, he really is able to read body language. It's one of the things he does mm. extremely well, and he teaches law enforcement how to do that. Okay. He's like a human lie detector. Ooh. It's kind of a cool thing. Kind of like you. Okay. Thank you for the compliment. What gives you that idea? Well, you read people pretty well. Well, thank you very much, Kimmy. I see an A on your forehead. And a B. Oh, okay. I'm reading. That's all. All right, Kimmy. Joe Frazier, born on this date, died in 2011 at the age of 67. Nickname Smokin' Joe. Tell me what he is known for. What sport? Boxing. That's correct. He was a professional boxer from 1965 to 1981. Birthday age question next, Kimmy. Rush Limbaugh. How old is Rush Limbaugh today within five years? 53. Rush Limbaugh is 66 years old today. Ooh. 
Estimates by Talkers Magazine have Rush Limbaugh having a weekly audience of around 13.25 million listeners. Wow. Making it the most listened to talk radio program in the United States. Now, according to Forbes, they rank him as the 11th highest earning celebrity in the world. Mm. Think about that. Just above us. <laughs> oh, yeah, just, just, just a little bit above us. That's Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> All right, give me. <laughs> All right, this, uh, this country musician having a birthday today. He decided just to retire to spend more time with his family. It's Ricky Van Shelton. He is 65. He performed from 1986 to 2006. He has charted more than 20 singles on the Billboard Hot Country Songs charts, and the uh, figure also includes 10 number one hits. He just decided back uh, in 2006, I am retired. Okay. Howard Stern, having a birthday today. How old is Howard Stern within five? 59. Wait a minute, Carrie. You, yeah, you did that right, Kimmy. He is 63 today. Okay. That's Howard Stern. Here is your audio clue. Tell me how old she is. It's an actress, Kimmy. Her big break came in 1982 playing Lieutenant Savick. In the science fiction film Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, who is she? Kirstie Alley. That's right. Kirstie Alley. How old is she today? Uh, 57. She is 66. Hmm. Next question about her. Tell me the TV show she's known for. Cheers. That's right. And can you tell me her first name on that show, the character's name? Um... No. Rebecca. Rebecca. Rebecca Howe. Mm -hmm. Did you like her better than the one that was before? Mm -hmm. You liked her better, Mm -hmm. Kirstie Alley. So did I agree. I was not a fan of Cheers. I became uh, a fan of Cheers. I didn't watch it when it was originally on. It was in syndication when I was able to catch it. Musician George Duke, born on this date, 1956, died in 2013 at the age of 67. Musician known as a keyboard pioneer, composer, singer, producer. He was both in the uh, pop world and jazz. And if you love smooth jazz, you would know George Duke. Musician having a birthday today, Kimmy. Love to meet him. Tell me how old Rob Zombie is. You have a five-year buffer. Ooh. Rob Zombie. 52. Exactly right. Move. Rob Zombie is 52. Another musician having a birthday, Brian Culbertson having a birthday. He's 44. He's an American contemporary jazz and R&B funk musician. He plays some really groovy stuff instrumentalist he's originally from decatur illinois his instruments include the synthesizer piano trombone drums bass trumpet also percussion instruments and other brass instruments as well i i was in the decatur area in radio a long time ago did not meet him there met him here in orlando when i worked at a smooth jazz station really cool cat mm. and just really groovy music if, you, if you're really into that kind of sound, uh, you want to check him out. That's Brian Culbertson. Moving over to another area of the Almanac. I see dead people. It is Celebrity and Notable Deaths. She passed away on this date in history, 1976. Agatha Christie. She died at the age of 85. English crime novelist, short storyteller, and writer, and also playwright. She is best known for her 66 detective novels and 14 short stories collections. The Guinness Book of World Records lists Christie as the best-selling novelist of all time. Her novels have sold roughly 2 billion copies, and her estate claims that her works come in third in the rankings of the world's most widely published books behind Shakespeare's works and the Bible. Have you ever read any Agatha Christie? 
No. Have you seen any Agatha Christie productions? Possibly. Well, Kimmy, we have an opportunity for you to sample some Agatha Christie as we go back in time. Radio Watch the Riley and Kimmy show and we love to go back in time anytime we can to the golden age of radio and we have one of the best examples of the theater of the mind Kimmy that is a production from Orson Welles with his Campbell Playhouse from 1939 Orson Welles acts and directs an Agatha Christie production the murder of Roger Ackroyd here we go back in time to 1939 please be forgiving of any sound quality issues here this was recorded in 1939 with technology unlike anything today or the last 25 years we're fortunate this has survived it definitely is ear candy a lot of uh, theater of the mind being demonstrated right here with a master that is Orson Welles here's Agatha Christie's the murder of Roger Ackroyd on the Riley and Kimmy show Orson Welles. Tonight we broadcast our version of what is generally regarded as one of the greatest of the modern mystery murder novels. In some peculiar fashion, it seems to have become necessary to defend the murder mystery as a form of entertainment. Heavy artillery is brought up in its behalf. President Wilson, it is proclaimed loudly, could not go to sleep or could go to sleep, one does not remember the point exactly, until a certain number of conflicting clues had managed to efface the days from his proof. And with a mysterious solved only after suspicion has been aimed at every adult in the neighborhood, he's not particularly shameful. I have never understood the need for this defense. Murder mysteries are, among other things, our most moral form of entertainment. The wrongdoer is regularly apprehended. If he is not, I have incredibly missed some fascinating black sheep of an author in a flock otherwise startlingly white. And one learns an obvious lesson that to be suspected wrongfully is in due course to be triumphantly cleared of suspicion. Life doesn't always proceed according to this admirable pattern. The apologists would do better to defend life, I sometimes think. To help us solve the mystery of the murder of Roger Ackroyd here tonight... We are fortunate in having a very powerful ally, a most distinguished lady and one of your favorite actresses. A lady in whose ears a nation's applause is still ringing for her latest brilliant success in Drums Along the Mohawk, Miss Edna May Oliver. But before we delve into the mysteries of this night's doings, Ernest Chappell has a comment to make on something which appears to be no mystery at all. Mr. Chappell. And now our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd with our guest of the evening, Edna May Oliver. And ladies and gentlemen, before we begin, I think you'd like to know that we have with us in the studio tonight as a surprise visitor, <clears throat> none other than the celebrated Belgian detective, Mr. Hercule Poirot. <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, I bid you good evening. Now, if we had time, which we have not, I'm sure nothing would please us more than to hear from Mr. Poirot, unfortunately... Why unfortunately when we have here a microphone? But, Mr. Poirot, you, you don't understand... I that... understand only that since my arrival in your country some weeks ago, I observed that there is circulate an impression of my person which I must now publicly refute. 
I trust that the embarrassment of my presence here tonight in Mr. Wells' studio will ensure from him an honest and lifelike portrait. It has been said that I am a little man. Regard for yourself that this is not so. I have five feet two inches of high. My head is perhaps egg-shaped, and I carry it perhaps a little to one side, the left, but my eyes shine green when I am excited. Are the largest in Europe, and my forces in my brain and not in my feet. If these things are made clear, and Mr. Wells is a little tribute to Hercule Poirot, I will be satisfied. The results of my little gray cells will speak for themselves. If you will show me where I am to sit, please. I thank you. Uh, uh, this is Mr. Poirot, Miss Oliver. How do you do? Miss Oliver, you have often wanted to meet me, I am sure. I compliment you. Uh, please, please, Mr. Poirot. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Let me to start with give you some idea of the little village of King's Abbot, of which I have for so many years been the leading, I must admit, also the only physician and surgeon. My name, by the way, is Shepherd, James Shepherd. We have a large railway station, a small post office, two rival general stores, very few able-bodied men, a staggering number of unmarried ladies, none of whom are getting any younger, and an amazing number of retired military officers, all of whom are getting older. In fact, the only newcomer for many months lives next door to me, concerning whom little is known, despite the earnest and tireless investigations carried on in respect to him by my sister Caroline. Caroline and her little group of earnest ferrets, or maiden ladies like herself, have been forced to content themselves with the simple fact of his nationality, which is alien, of his name, which is Poirot, the obvious fact that he putters around his garden all day growing cucumbers, and the suspicion, based chiefly on malicious deductions, he's retired hairdresser. Let's see. Now, the main house of any importance King's Abbot is Fernley Hall, owned by Roger Ackroyd, who's always looked more like a country squire than any country squire could really look, but who's actually an immensely wealthy manufacturer of wagon wheels, nearly 50 years of age, rubicon of face, and genial of manner, and general the life and soul of our, to this week, the peaceful village. The other house of any importance has been left to Mrs. Ferrars by her late husband. Uh, Mrs. Ferrars died on the night of the 16th of September, a little less than a week ago. It seems longer than that. I've sent over for a Eight o'clock the morning of the 17th. There was nothing to be done. She'd been dead some hours. I turned to my home as soon as I decently could, looking forward happily to the warm breakfast I had missed and rather unhappily to the certainty of a relentless cross-examination by my sister Caroline. Is that you, James? What on earth are you doing out there in the hall? Just hanging up my overcoat, my dear. Oh, Mrs. Farrow's died in her sleep, didn't she? Bacon is cold. How did you know? Out with the dawn securing information instead of warming the bacon, is that it? I suppose you're going to tell me she died of heart failure. Annie told me. The milkman told her. He had it from Farrar's cook. Since you are bound to hear sooner or later, Caroline, from the greengrocer or the postman, I might as well tell you myself. She died of an overdose of sleeping medicine. She hadn't been sleeping well later. Nonsense. She took it on purpose. Well, now, why on earth should Mrs. Farrar's wish to commit suicide? A widow still fairly young, very well off, good health, nothing to do but enjoy life. And looking forward to marrying Roger Ackroyd. Don't forget to leave that out. That's an item of fact only in your local gossip circle. A fact's a fact. And there is such a thing as remorse, James, even if you're as wealthy as Mrs. Farrar. Remorse? I have always been convinced she poisoned her husband, and I'm more than ever convinced of it now. If you'd arranged an inquest a year ago, as I'd suggested, you you're should... You're talking nonsense, Caroline. Then you're absolutely satisfied it was an accident. I'm satisfied this bacon is not going to get any warmer by itself, and it's time I went to the surgery to see my patient. All right, James, you don't have to be grumpy about it. Oh, by the way, Mr. Aykroyd's butler, Parker Cole. What about Mr. Aykroyd wants to know if you'll dine with him this evening. He says he'd regard it as a great favor if you'd cancel any other engagement. Of course I'll go and 
Don't worry, Caroline. I may tell you all about the dinner tomorrow. Oh, then I'll give you something to tell Mr. Ackroyd tonight. Rafe Payton is back. Rafe Payton? Yes, and he's staying at the Dog and Whistle. I know he's taking particular pains to be sure that Mr. Ackroyd doesn't find out about it. I wouldn't dream of telling him. Roger Ackroyd's relations with his stepson are his own affair. Believe me, Caroline, according to every interpretation except your own... I can't help it if people tell me things. In answer to questions. Well, you'd better rush along to that precious surgery of yours. You've got four patients waiting. How do you know? Well, one can't help seeing through a window. If one is looking through a window... The distance from my house to Fernley Hall, Roger Ackroyd's home, is a little over two miles. I remember that evening as I walked that the subject of Caroline's latest piece of gossip kept returning to my mind. Rafe Payton was in King's Abbott. Rafe Payton, whom I'd known and liked since he was a child. Adopted by Ackroyd upon the death of his mother, he'd grown up to be a handsome but what our narrow little village regarded as a rather wild young man. There'd been many stormy scenes between his stepfather and himself before he finally left for London. According to Caroline, he was secretly engaged to Flora Ackroyd, Roger Ackroyd's niece, who, with her mother, was now living in Fernley Hall. Uh, according to Caroline, I say, and Caroline's information, I'm afraid, is always exact. However illegitimate her source may be. What's the trouble, Ackroyd? A bit under the weather? Yes, Doctor. I've had a little of that pain after food lately. You must give me some more of those tablets of yours. I thought as much, Ackroyd. I brought some up with me. My bag in the hall. I'll get them. No, oh, don't trouble. Uh, make certain that window's closed, will you, Shepard? Of course. Well, that one's open. I'll put the latch across, will you? All right. I see what's really bothering you, Ackroyd. The, uh, the door's closed, isn't it? Yes. Shepard, nobody knows what I've gone through in the last 24 hours. What's the trouble? You're an old friend, Doctor. My oldest friend, perhaps. You attended Ashley Ferrers in his last illness, didn't you? Yes, I did. Did it ever enter your mind that he might have been poisoned? Well, frankly, Ackroyd, I don't think I should... He was poisoned. By whom? His wife. She told me so herself yesterday. Yesterday? You mean a few hours before she died, she told you? Yes. Some weeks ago, I asked Mrs. Ferris to marry me. She refused. Last week, I asked her again, and she consented. Yesterday, I called upon her. I noticed that she'd been very strange in her manner for some days. Now, without the least warning, she broke down completely. She told me everything. Her hatred of her swine of a husband, her growing love for me, and then, a year ago, the dreadful means she had taken to free herself. It was poison, Shepard. Murder in cold blood. Murder? Are you sure, Eckhart? That wasn't all. It seems there's one person who's known all along what she did, who's been blackmailing her for huge sums. It was the strain of that that drove her nearly mad. Who was the man? She wouldn't tell me his name. Have you any suspicion? I don't dare have a suspicion. Something she said made me think that the person in question might actually be a member of my household. But that can't be so. I, I won't let it be so. I must have misunderstood her. What'd you say to her? What could I say? She made me that promise to do nothing for 24 hours, and she refused to give me the name of the scoundrel who'd been blackmailing her. I never dreamt she'd kill herself. Shepard, will you hand me that letter on the table there, in the blue envelope? Uh, this one? Thanks. It's from her. It arrived during dinner. She must have written it just before she... Do you think she wrote you the little bit she didn't tell you, is that it? Name of the man. Yes, I think so. I've got to open it, and yet I, I'm afraid. What's that? What? 
I thought the latch of the door gave a bit. Yes? I'll see if there's anyone there. No one. Uh, nerves, I expect. Are you sure you shut the window? Yes, it's closed. Well, I'll read it. If I read it to you, it won't seem so bad. I won't be facing it alone. No matter what the name. My dear, my very dear Roger, a life calls for a life. I see that. I saw it in your face this afternoon. So I'm taking the only road open to me. I leave to you the punishment of the person who made my life a hell on earth for the last year. I would not tell you the name this afternoon, but I propose to write it to you now, dear Roger, now that I have nothing more to fear. Would you forgive me, Shepard, but I see I must read this alone. It was meant for my eyes and my eyes alone. Do you think that's wise, Roger? I'd rather wait. Well, if you insist on not letting me help you. If you must put it that way, yes, my dear friend, I do insist. I'm sorry. I left Fernley Hall at a quarter to nine. From Fernley Hall to my house, it takes, as a rule, about three quarters of an hour. The night there was a moon shining, and I did it in less. From the road, I noticed the lights blazing in our parlor. Caroline was entertaining. Through the window, I caught sight of an egg-shaped head partially covered with suspiciously black hair, two immense moustaches, and a pair of watchful eyes. James, come in, come in, come in. You're just in time for hot milk and crackers. Oh, thank you, Caroline. Oh, excuse me, I'm This sorry. is my brother, Dr. Shepherd. I am enchanted. James, this is Mr. Hercule Poirot. How do you do, sir? Mr. Poirot is our new neighbor. If I may be permitted the one slight correction, my name is Hercule Poirot. Your good sister proceeds on the familiar English assumption that we are not English, do not know how to pronounce our own silly names. <laughs> He's just making fun of me, James. He has a very dry wit. We've had quite an interesting conversation. I question that it was two-sided. And do you know what Mr. Poirot told me? He's a policeman. Uh, pardon, mademoiselle. Not yet. I see. Do you appreciate Hercule Poirot? It is true earth. The name Poirot, mademoiselle, is known today in every continent, every land, nay, in every city of the world. I am become the mode, the last word. I am as much a specialist as an early street physician. Well, that's what I said, didn't I? A detective? Yeah, consulting detective. That's what I said. I'm afraid, Mr. Poirot, you find little to occupy a man of your talents in this village. Mr. Poirot tells me what he's looking for just now is peace and quiet. Precisely, mademoiselle. That and the correct soil, which you have in so great abundance here in King's Abbot for the cultivation of cucumbers. Oh, I'll answer it. It's probably Mrs. Bates and her rheumatism. Never mind, Caroline. I'll take it. Oh, all right. Hello. Hello. What? What's that? Certainly, of course, I... Once I will at once. What, what is it? It's Parker, the butler, calling from Fernley. Just found Roger Ackroyd. Murdered. Why, Dr. Shepard. Where is he, Parker? I beg your pardon, sir. Mr. Ackroyd, don't stand there staring at me. Have you notified the police? 
The police, I said, what's sir? the matter with you, Parker? You call me to tell me your master's been murdered. Your master murdered? Didn't you telephone me not five minutes ago and tell me Mr. Ackroyd has been found murdered? Me? Oh, no, sir. My English is not of the best, Dr. Shepard, but there seems to be a peculiar misapprehension. Why, Dr. Shepard, I never... I'll give you the exact words I heard just now on the phone. This is Parker, the butler at Furness speaking. Will you please come at once, sir? Mr. Ackroyd has been murdered. But, Doctor, I... Where is Mr. Ackroyd, Parker? Why, he's in the study, well, If you sir. don't mind waiting down here a moment, Monsieur Poirot, I won't be a minute. This way, sir. But of course, of course. I, uh, I'd rather not intrude on him, sir, if you don't mind. Well, I will, then. Door's locked. Well, Mr. Ackroyd must have locked himself in and possibly just dropped off to sleep, sir. Ackroyd! Ackroyd! Look here, Parker. I'd have break this door in, or rather we are. But, Dr. Shepard... I'll take the responsibility. Oh, if you say so, sir. All right, here we go. Together now. One... Head is sideways, permitting the dagger to penetrate the jugular. Death was instantaneous. Ah, has the body been moved? Beyond making certain that life is extinct, I haven't disturbed the body in any way. And you didn't touch the dagger, did you, Doctor? No, Inspector. No, good. Well, we'll want that for fingerprints. Ah, rummy-looking thing, isn't it? Foreign-looking. Moorish silver. Mr. Ackroyd was quite a collector. There are his silver cases over against the wall. Eh? Who are you? My name's Raymond. And Mr. Ackroyd's private secretary. That's right, Inspector. He's been with Mr. Ackroyd almost two years now. Oh, very well. Now, uh, <clears throat> Doctor, how long should you say he's been dead? Half an hour at least, perhaps longer. Now, you had to break down the door, eh? What about the window? The uh, English people, they have a mania for the fresh air. The big air is all very well outside where it belongs. Why admit it to the hour? Hey, who are you? How did you get in here? You call yourself, unfortunate man, an inspector of police, and you say to me, who am I? Hercule Poirot, master detective, possessed of the finest brain in Europe, known in every continent, in every land, nay, in every city. Not in my part of the world, you ain't. I never heard of you. How about from Monsieur Poirot, inspector? It's my house and the phone call came, Mr. Ackroyd's death. Oh, oh, well, all right then. He can stay. But this is my case, and don't you forget it. Now then. When was Mr. Ackroyd last seen alive? I don't know, probably by me. And I left, let me see, a little before nine. Mr. Ackroyd was certainly alive at half past nine. I, I heard him in here talking. Who to, Mr. Raymond? I don't know. I just heard his voice. But I know it was 9.30. You didn't hear any of their conversation, did you, Mr. Raymond? I did catch a fragment of it. But it did strike me as a trifle odd. Remember, please, the words exact. It is very important. I'm not sure that I can. But the words exact. Uh, wait a minute, uh, Mr. Parrott. Who's conducting this case? You or me? Now then, Mr. Raymond, what was these words you heard Mr. Ackroyd say at 9.30? Well, come on. I'd swear under oath the exact words were... The calls on my purse have been so frequent of late that I find it impossible to accede to your request. Thank you, Mr. Raymond, very much. I, uh, I beg pardon, Inspector. Well, what is it, Parker? I just remembered. Miss Flora saw Mr. Ackroyd later than 9.30, about quarter of ten... She was just coming out of this room. You mean she was just closing the study door? No, sir. She'd already closed the door when I saw her. Oh, she told me Mr. Ackroyd was not to be disturbed again tonight. Where's Miss Flora? Upstairs in her room. Shall I ask her to come down? No, no. Uh, I'll go up. One moment, if I might be so humble, Monsieur Inspector. Could I ask our friend Parker for a little information? Well, well, what is it? Thank you for your so gracious permission, Inspector. Tell me, Parker... Is this room exactly as it was when you entered it with Dr. Shepard? Well, to tell you the truth, sir, 
I felt myself that this chair here was drawn out a little more. It has been puzzling. The grandfather chair between the door and the window. That's right, sir. That's very curious. No one would want to sit in a chair in such a position. What are you talking about? When a man wants to sit, he sits, don't he? Who pushed it back in place, I wonder? Did you, Parker? No, sir. No, sir. I, I was too upset at seeing the master and all. It, it isn't important, is it, sir? It is completely unimportant. That's why it is so interesting. You're very late for breakfast, James. I was up quite late, Karen. I'm afraid I forgot your natural anxiety to learn details you're not supposed to know. Well, don't worry about me, James. Mr. Poirot was working his cucumbers at daybreak this morning. 6.37, it was. And I've been with him ever since. Good. Perhaps you have some information for me, Caroline. Perhaps I have. Perhaps I have. Or are you going to pretend you know what suddenly occurred to Mr. Poirot in the night? So that he couldn't sleep for an hour or two after he got home? Inasmuch as I hadn't seen our friends, he went to bed. I... Well, I don't feel very much like telling you either. If I didn't know that he'd tell you himself, I don't think I would. Well, he was worrying about the prints of some shoes outside the window. The way the rubber studs were worn down, he says, should mean something to him. But he doesn't know what. Did you explain it to him, Caroline? Hasn't the cook been of any help to you? Or the milkman, or the ladies' aid society, You or... needn't always be facetious, James. Hasn't the bacon needn't always be cold, I dare say. But it is, and so am I. But not cold, but facetious. James, James, do you know what Mr. Poirot said? He said I had the makings of a born detective in me. He particularly admires my wonderful instinct into human nature. And he told me a lot about the little gray cells of the brain. He says his are of the first quality, slightly above that, in fact. I'm sure they are. He thinks you're very intelligent, too. Ah, good morning, good shepherd. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Poirot. A beautiful morning, is it not? See, how is this for a cucumber? Beautiful, now, my friend, it is yours. I give it to you. Altogether, my good shepherd, I have a wonderful morning. Everywhere I learn things new and wonderful things. And all the time, the gray cells of Hercule Poirot, they are working, working. Miss Caroline, she tells me so much about this Rafe Payton. This morning, I go to the hotel. It's what you call it. The dog and uh, uh, Thank you, Miss Caroline. And I think I will talk myself to Rafe Payton. Then they tell me at the uh, dog and whistle uh, that was here last night, another gentleman asking for Mr. Payton. Why, James, I certainly well, think you, you might have told... No, Caroline, I thought someone ought to inform Rafe of his uncle's death. I... The least one could do, and since no one but myself, the members of your intelligence service, knew that he was in King's Abbot at all. Matter of fact, Rafe Payton left the door and was at nine o'clock last night, never came back. Well, what on earth do you think happened to him? Rafe Payton has a right to come and go as he pleases. He might have gone anywhere. He might even have gone back to London. Leaving his luggage behind? I wonder. Oh, by the way, my good shepherd, the telephone call. Oh, you mean the one that came while you were at the house of Mr. Well, that Perron. is the one. Tell me, do you think it is possible that someone could have telephoned you and imitated Parker's voice sufficiently to deceive you? Well, he said he was Parker. James really doesn't know Parker's voice well enough. Of course, of course. But the telephone call was traced this morning by my friend Inspector Hempstead. It didn't come from Fanny Hall at all. It was put through to you at 9.50 last night from a public call office at King's Abbott Station and at 23, the night mail is for Liverpool. It is the inspector's opinion that the murderer may have left King's Abbott on that very train. Ah, then you do believe that Rafe Payton... I... 
believe nothing, mademoiselle, until it is proved. Well, then, what do you think? I think, Miss Caroline, that uh, Roger Ackroyd was murdered. Outside of that, I think that I will have to think a good deal more. Oh, it's an outrage. That's what it is. A little man, not even an Englishman, a foreigner with moustaches, comes into this home, a British home, a house of mourning, unsolicited, unwelcome. Oh, Mother, do be quiet. Flora, I will not. He comes in here, into my own brother-in-law's house, questions us like a lot of criminals, besmirches our kiss oh, and kin. Mrs. Ackroyd. Mr. Poirot, you must excuse my mother. My uncle's death was a terrible shock. I understand, mademoiselle. It is very little that Hercule Poirot does not understand. Honestly, no, Mr. Poirot, you're on the wrong track. Ralph Peyton has nothing to do with this crime. The mere fact that he was hard-pressed for money... Was he hard-pressed for money, Mr. Oh, Mr. Raymond? Raymond, now you've made it seem as though... Miss Ackroyd, I'm merely telling the truth. Yes, he was hard-pressed. He was always applying to his stepfather for money. But, Mr. Please, Poirot, mademoiselle, had he done so of late, Mr. Raymond? During the last week, for example. Mr. Ackroyd didn't mention such a fact to me. Of course, Mr. Peyton will never again have to apply to anyone for money. You mean that uh, Mr. Ackroyd's will... Exactly. After paying certain legacies and bequeaths, servants, charities, and so on. Ah, including yourself, uh, Mr. Raymond. Mr. Ackroyd was good enough to remember me to the extent of 1,000 pounds. Mm, it's not surprising. Go on, please. Well, Miss Flora Ackroyd inherits 20,000 pounds outright. The residue, including this property and an outstanding control in the business, goes to Rafe Payton. Uh, you have been familiar with this will for some time past, Mr. Raymond. Roger Ackroyd's confidential secretary. Of course, of course. Um, and Mr. Ackroyd possessed a very large fortune indeed, any not? Fortune that would have been regarded as large even in less tax-ridden times. Then the immediate inheritance of such a large sum would have eased very considerably the present difficulties of Mr. Rafe Payton. Mr. Poirot, you don't think... Is that so, Mr. Raymond? Yes, that is so. You awful little man, talking that way, when you know how Flora feels about Ralph Patton. The idea that you suspect him of killing his sister. Him no more than any other, madame. You know what I think? I think Roger's death was an accident. Roger was so fond of handling curios. His hand must have slipped or something. He was really a very strange man. Would you believe it? He never gave Flora and me an allowance. His own family. And of course, we didn't have a penny of our own. Why, at this very if moment... If you need any ready money, Mrs. Ackroyd, Mr. Ackroyd cashed a check for £100 yesterday for wages and other expenses due today. The money was never spent. And where, if you please, is this money? He always kept his cash in his bedroom. I suggest that we see if the money is there. Why, Mr. Poirot, surely... Am I to understand, you miserable little foreigner, that you're intimating that I... I merely intimate, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, we see if the money is still there. Ladies and gentlemen, there are here only 60 pounds. Oh, that's impossible. Let me see. 10, 20, uh, The man's right. It is 60. I... This is terrible. Dr. Shepard, Mr. Poirot, I hope nobody believes... One it. must believe there are 60 pounds where they were hundred. However, I'm sure no one would suggest that you, Mr. Raymond, or you, Mrs. Ackroyd, who alone knew of the money... Mr. Poirot, I protest. Just one moment. Flora. I took the money. I'm a thief. I'm a common, vulgar little thief. Now you know. I'm glad that it's come out. I'm glad also, Miss Flora. 
You are? Yes, because now we comprehend why Parker thought he saw you coming out of your uncle's room at a quarter of ten. But he did see her coming out of the door. He said so. No, that's just what he did not see. He saw Miss Flora outside the door with her hand on the handle. He did not see Miss Flora come out of the study for a good reason. Miss Flora was never in the study. But where else could she have been? Perhaps on the stairs. Well, those stairs only lead to Mr. Ackroyd's bedroom. Precisely. Then you knew I took the 40 pounds? I knew nothing, but I suspected much. As even now, I suspect that this money you have taken, you did not take it for yourself. I took it for myself. You can take what steps you please. I assure you, Miss Ackroyd, no steps will be taken. Only one thing... Why did you not tell me sooner? Me, Hercule Poirot, who in the end will know everything. Why do not all of you tell me the truth? Just because Flora made a little mistake. That's no Silence, to... silence, madam. Ladies and gentlemen, I am amazed. I, my powers might not be what they were. In all probability, this is the last case I shall ever investigate. But Hercule Poirot does not end with a failure. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, I mean to know, and I shall know in spite of you all. How do you mean, in spite of us all? But just that, monsieur. Every one of you in this room is concealing something from me. It may be something trivial, which is supposed to have no bearing on the case... Each one of you has something to hide. I appeal to you. Tell me the truth now. The old truth. Miss Rora. My good shepherd, Mrs. Ackroyd, Parker, Mr. Raymond. Will no one speak? It is a pity. You are listening to Orson Welles in the Campbell Playhouse presentation of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd with Edna May Oliver. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. And now Orson Welles continues our presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd with Edna May Oliver. I'm a village surgeon, and Hercule Poirot is a distinguished Belgian detective, so it was scarcely for me to tell him I thought he was wasting his time. It was certainly not for me to tell him that he was getting on my nerves. Not that I didn't admire his extraordinary cleverness on the inside. Poirot was right, for instance, about the dagger. Police investigation confirmed his suspicion that the fingerprints on the handle of the dagger were those of Roger Ackroyd, the murdered man. Though the position of the dagger definitely precluded suicide. It was Poirot who established that it had not been Parker, the butler, who summoned me on the phone that night to what had become a house of death. 
And again, it was Hercule Poirot who made it indubitably clear that nobody had seen Roger Ackroyd alive after 9.30, at which time Raymond, the secretary, had heard Ackroyd's voice in the study. In spite of all this, it seemed to me that Hercule Poirot was making little real progress in solving the mystery of Roger Ackroyd's death. Furthermore, it seemed to me a curious thing for a detective of his self-proclaimed standing to be spending so much of his precious time in idle chatter with my sister, Caroline. I had a very interesting chat with Mr. Boyrot, James. He thinks me uh, very intelligent. So you've told me. Is it just a coincidence, Caroline, that on those occasional mornings when the bacon is both warm and crisp, it should be so far away from me that I can't reach it? Too much bacon isn't good for you. There's no such thing as too much bacon. And I'll be the judge of what's good for me. I rather fancy that at least is something I know best, Caroline. Mm. You know so many things, James. You're so self-complacent. That's why it's difficult to talk to you. That's why you get the idea that I, that people, are trying to pump you. Some more bacon, please. Mr. Poirot says I, uh, I make an excellent detective. Did he? Mm. We had a very interesting chat. I wonder if Monsieur Poirot found it interesting. He said I was more valuable than anyone he's met here. He told me a lot about his life, too. About a mad nephew of his. Do you know that Prince Paul of Muritania, the one who just married a dancer? Well, he I do like... not know her. You do not know her, and I do not care to hear about her or about his mad nephew either. Did he ask you any questions, Caroline? No questions. We just chatted and chatted. More bacon, please. I have a little theory of my own, James. Mr. Poirot didn't ask me, but he might have. Whom do you suspect? I don't suspect anybody. I know. Parker was here in your surgery the morning of the murder. That place is full of poison. He's sure to have taken some. As a matter of fact, that's been my theory right along. Roger Ackroyd was poisoned in his food that night. Francis, <laughs> he was stabbed in the neck. You know that as well as I do. After death to make a false clue. I examined the body and I know what I'm talking about. That wound wasn't inflicted after death. It was the cause of death. And don't look so omniscient. Next you'll be telling me you know more about medicine than I do. Perhaps you think you could take over my practice. Oh, don't be ridiculous. You know I haven't a license. That afternoon, Caroline had a mahjong party made up of her little group of village gossipers, in whose opinion, I now learned, Rafe Payton was mysteriously concealed somewhere in Cranchester, the only big town anywhere near us. Of course, that was true. Uh, Miss Gannett's maid, it seems, had contributed the additional information that while taking a walk that afternoon on Cranchester Road, she'd seen Monsieur Poirot in a large black car coming from that direction. After that, I was not surprised to learn that Monsieur Poirot had been invited to my house for dinner. Caroline believes, whenever possible, in getting her information directly from headquarters. A little more raspberry shape, Mr. Poirot. <laughs> Under no circumstances. I am already a man of a uh, corpulence so great. It would hardly become me if I, uh... Well, perhaps, yes. There is no harm in a little raspberry shape. There you are, Mr. Poirot. I beg your pardon, Caroline, if I might have my first helping. Oh, I'll sort this out, me, James. There you are. Thanks. Uh, Mr. Poirot, sir. What do you think about Rafe Payton now? What I think would scarcely be regarded as legal evidence in the courtroom, mademoiselle. Dear, 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 mademoiselle. You, you are incredulous, mademoiselle Chevron. I am incredulous. You have a theory, Paul. I don't have a theory. 
I know. Oh, Caroline. James, don't meddle about in what you don't understand. There are several points to this case. Yes, mademoiselle. Point number one. Mr. Ackroyd was heard talking to someone after, after half past nine. Point number two. At some time during the evening, Rafe Payton must have come in through the window as evidenced by the prints of his shoes. Point number three. Mr. Ackroyd was nervous that evening and could have only admitted someone he knew. Point number four. The person with Ackroyd at 9.30 was asking for money. We know Rafe Payton was in a scrape. Admirable. Oh, and one other thing, Mr. Mr. Poirot. I found out something for you today. The boots Rafe Payton was wearing that night, they were not brown. They were black. Ah, you have found that out for me. Thank you, thank you. You are sure, mademoiselle, they were brown or black? Positive. Too bad. Too bad if they were only black, those boots. I mean, if, if they were. You, you mean... Yes, I understand. Rafe Payton is guilty or innocent according to whether his boots are brown or black. Really, Mr. Poirot? It could easily be. For murder, there was with Mr. Mason so many motives. First motive, blackmail. Rafe Payton may have been the man who blackmailed Mrs. Ferrers. Reason, his general money needs. The second motive, the certainty of a great inheritance through Mr. Ackroyd's death. And the third motive, Caroline? Very simple, very simple. Mr. Ackroyd's violent disapproval of Rafe's proposed marriage to Miss Flora. Well, after listening to you, Caroline, I'd say the case is very black against him. I haven't a case, James. I know. Late that afternoon, Monsieur Poirot called on me to ask if I could arrange a little conference room at his home that night. Those would be present Mrs. Ackroyd, Flora, Raymond, and Parker. I think Caroline, who was present when he called, would have given ten years of her life to have been added to the list. For my part, I would have been only too glad to yield up my place among those who in that particular evening gathered around the beaming countenance of the Belgian detective and cucumber breeder. <coughs> yeah, I'm clearing my throat. That is an accepted signal in this country that a meeting is about to begin. Quiet, everybody. I'll read the list. You will please answer to your names. Uh, Raymond. Yes. Uh, Parker. Yes, sir. Mrs. Ackroyd. Yes, but I want to speak, Captain. Yes, will be sufficient. Miss uh, Flora. Yes. Say, Flora, what's the meaning of all this? The list I have just read is the list of suspected persons. Every one of you present had the opportunity to kill Mr. Ackroyd. I won't stand for this. I'm going. You will not go, madam, until you have heard what I have to say. I clear my throat again. <clears throat> And now I commence at the beginning. <clears throat> Until now, ladies and gentlemen, we have all been trying to answer to ourselves one principal question. Who was in the room with Mr. Ackroyd at 9.30? Not Dr. Shepard, since I myself can prove that he was at home. Not Miss Flora, nor Mrs. Ackroyd, nor Mr. Raymond, with whose actions on that evening we are well acquainted. Nor Parker, who has furnished me with a satisfactory alibi. Who then? This is the part of Hercule Poirot, the cleverest, the most audacious question. Was anyone with him? <laughs> 
Are you trying to make me out a liar, Mr. Poirot? I tell you, I distinctly heard voices. I distinctly heard the words that Mr. Ackroyd was speaking. Mr. Raymond, the words that Mr. Ackroyd said. The calls on my purse have been so frequent of late that I believe it is impossible for me to accede to your request. Huh. Does nothing strike you as odd about them? Their style, for example. No, he frequently dictated letters to me using exactly the same style. That is precisely what I seek to arrive at. Would any man use such a phrase in talking to another, huh? <laughs> I think not. My friends, you have all forgotten one thing. This stranger who called at the house in the proceeding weekend, the firm he represented. Do you remember, Mr. Raymond? Dictaphone company. A dictaphone? That's what you think. Mr. Ackroyd had promised to invest in a dictaphone, you remember. Me, I had the curiosity to inquire of the company and question their reply, Mr. Raymond, was that Mr. Ackroyd did purchase a dictaphone from their representative. Why he concealed the matter from you, his confidential secretary, I do not know. Must have meant to surprise me with it. He had quite a childish love of surprising people. Oh, there's only one man who could have done it. You mean my face? Mother! Oh, let's face it. If he's innocent, he should be able to prove it. If he isn't... If only he'd come forward. That is your advice, Mr. Raymond. That he should come forward. Certainly. Do you know where he is? Me? I know everything. Remember that. The truth of the telephone call of the footprints on the window sill of the hiding place of Repato. Where is he? Not very far away. Where? In Cranchester? Where? No. He is not in Cranchester. He is here, in the doorway of this room. Right. Hey, my darling. Have I not told you all at least 36 times that it was useless to conceal things from Hercule Poirot? That always I discover the little secret. It is my business. From Dr. Shepard's sister Caroline, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I learned that uh, the doctor and Rafe Payton, they are old friends. Dr. Shepard knows that things look very black against his friend Payton. He tells him the old story. Yes, he did. He explained to me how suspicion was bound to fall on me, and I had no real alibi. And with the best of intentions, people sometimes make errors. That's why Dr. Shepard consented to do what he could to help Mr. Payton. He was successful in hiding him from the police. Where? In his own house? Uh, no, indeed, Mr. Raymond. You should ask yourself the question that I, Hercule Poirot, did. If the good doctor is concealing the young man, what place would he choose? It must necessarily be somewhere near at hand. I think of Cranchester, a hotel. No, lodgings, even more impractically. No, where then? Ha, <laughs> ha, I have it. A nursing home. I make inquiries. Yes, at one of them, a patient was brought there by the doctor himself early on Saturday morning. That patient, I had no difficulty in identifying him as right patient. He arrived at my house yesterday, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the point of this evening's meeting. Rafe Patron says he is innocent of the killing of Roger Ackroyd. Oh, I am. I, I swear by heaven please, I please, am. Please, Mr. Patron, please. You have just heard Mr. Patron declare he is innocent. Yet he has three motives for the murder and no alibi. Well, I certainly don't see how you can sit there. I am possessing the floor, Mrs. Ackroyd. Listen carefully, everybody. To save Mr. Payton, the real criminal must confess. I you speak to you, Hercule Poirot. I know that the murder of Mr. Ackroyd is in this room now, at this table, tonight. Tomorrow in the morning, the truth goes to the police. You mean you know who... Yes. 
At the moment, I know. I alone. For the murder of Roger Ackroyd, there is only one way out. And that way does not lead to freedom. And it is to the murder or not that I speak. This is a matter of life and death. And I, Hercule Poirot, am not joking. Good night. What are you doing out there in the hall? Today, am I overcalled, my dear? Well, aren't you coming in to chat? I'm very tired, Caroline. But at least you can tell me what happened last night. Mr. Poirot told us all about his little gray cell again. Oh, does he think Rafe Payton is guilty? No. Well, he's crazy. You can go over and tell him so in the morning. Good night, Caroline. very tired. My arm aches from writing. I've written it all out. Now Peyton will be cleared. As I think back, I'm not quite certain why I urged Ackroyd to read that letter before it was too late. Perhaps I subconsciously realized that with a pig-headed chap like that, it my best chance of getting him not to read it. His nervousness that night was interesting psychologically. He knew danger was close at hand, yet he never once suspected me as the blackmail of Mrs. Ferrars. The dagger was an afterthought. I'd thought of a very little weapon of my own, but uh, I saw the dagger lying on the silver table. It occurred to me how, how much better it'd be to use a weapon that couldn't be traced to me. I suppose I must have meant to murder him all along. As soon as I'd heard of Mrs. Ferrars' death, I felt convinced that she'd have told him everything before she died. So I went home and took my precautions... The dictaphone he had given me two days before to adjust. Something gone a little wrong with it, and I persuaded Ackroyd let me have a go at it instead of sending it back. I did what I wanted to it, took it up with me in my bag, study that evening. When it was all over, I looked around the room for the door. Quite satisfied, nothing had been left undone. The dictaphone was on the table by the window, time to go over at 9.30. The mechanism of that little device was rather clever, based on the principal alarm clock, and the armchair was pulled out so as to hide it from the door. I never dreamed that Parker would notice that Notice that chair. Certainly would not have remembered Poirot hadn't asked him. Having the American sailor with a toothache call me from King's Abbot that night is a stroke of genius. There's no way for anyone listening to have told that it was not Parker. <laughs> I still don't know how Poirot thought that one out. My only regret is about Caroline, and yet I feel I can trust Poirot. She'll never know the truth, and I'm glad at that. I shouldn't like her to know she's fond of me, and then, too, she's proud. My death will be a grief to her, but grief passes. When I've finished writing, I shall enclose this whole manuscript in an envelope to address it to Poirot. And now, because I'm tired, take some sleeping powders. Because I'm very tired, I will take more sleeping powders than I should. More than anybody should. I suppose I ought to feel sorry. I am sorry. Sorry that Hercule Poirot ever came to King's Abbot to grow his cucumbers.
This concludes our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the murder of Roger Ackroyd. In just a moment, Orson Welles will return to the microphone with our guest of the evening, Edna May Oliver. And now, here is Orson Welles with Edna May Oliver. Uh, never mind, uh, Orson Welles. What about me, Hercule Poirot? Miss Oliver, have I not the little gray cells? <laughs> you and your gray cells. If you ask me, I think Rafe Peyton committed the murder. After listening to my explanation so careful? Especially after listening to your exclamation so careful. Now, in the days when I was a detective... Scotland Yard? No, RKO. You and your one little murder. Why, when I was a detective, no, no sooner did I establish the identity of the murderer than he was murdered. And I had to start all over again. It is well for you, Miss Oliver, to be literally genius of Hercule Poirot. But remember this. Hercule Poirot always laughs last. Attend. I laugh last. Ha, ha, ha. I accept that as a laugh. Go on. I have observed the proceedings here in the studio, and I have detected a circumstance which has indubitably escaped you are untrained to watch for such things. Almost it had escaped me myself. Not only did I discover that the gentleman who told the story, Dr. Shepard, was himself the murderer of Roger Ackroyd, but I now reveal to you that he was enacted in Mr. Wells' little anecdote by none other than that beloved portrayer of dramatic roles, that celebrated delineator of character, that unparalleled purveyor of protean portraiture, that internationally celebrated... You refer to Orson Wells, I take it, Mr. Wells? I do. <sighs> Now, I would like to be allowed a little observation of my own. Excuse me, Moiro. Avez-vous la bloom de matin? What? I'm not finished yet. Où est le chapeau de ma mère? That's all right, Mr. Poirot. I just wanted to see if you could really speak French. Attend, Mr. Poirot. I laugh last. <laughs> Good night, Edna May Oliver. And may I say, I hope that this will not be the last time that you will put me in my place in this program. In tonight's Campbell Playhouse production of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, the role of Caroline Shepard was played by Edna May Oliver. The part of Roger Ackroyd was played by Alan Napier, Mrs. Ackroyd by Brenda Forbes, and Flora Ackroyd by Mary Taylor. George Kalouris was heard as Inspector Hempstead, Ray Collins as Mr. Raymond, and Everett Sloan as Parker the butler. Dr. James Shepard, who committed the murder, was played by Orson Welles, and Hercule Poirot, who arrested Dr. Shepard, was played by Orson Welles. The music for tonight's production, with the exception of the Noel Coward melodies, was composed and, of course, conducted by Bernard Herrmann. If you enjoyed that golden age of radio production, be sure to follow the Riley and Kimmy Show. We feature old-time radio shows from time to time. We have archived episodes available right now on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. Some of them have old-time radio episodes on them. Please tell your friends about the Riley and Kimmy Show. Help us grow. Our social media links are available on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. That's R-I-L-E-Y. And Kimmy, K-I-M-M-Y, dot com. If you friend, follow, and like us, we will friend and follow you back. Also, be sure to check out our website, events page, and our social media pages 
for updates where the Riley and Kimmy show will be appearing next. And we're available for your pop culture event and also those that are animal based about pets and animals too. We have a spinoff show called Animal Special. So be sure to tell your friends about us. It's the Riley and Kimmy show, the nerd variety talk show with daily pop culture episodes. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Find archive podcasts of The Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.